It's good for us to be here. You know, uh, JD said, if you plug your own book, an angel loses its wings and a puppy dies. Uh, I haven't written any books, so there's nothing for me to plug except that that's our church bookstore. And you guys should be out there buying stuff. I think when you plug your church's bookstore, an angel gets its wings and five puppies are born. So good for that. All right. Thank you, everyone, for, for coming in. And we're looking forward to uh, our time with the speakers today. And so we're, we'll get started. Um, let's pray, and then we'll hear more. Father in heaven, we thank you for the, the blessing of the unity that we have in you, around your word, with your people. This is truly a, a family that transcends what we have on this earth, and it takes us up to heaven where we can breathe this, this upper air and experience the holiness of Christ and his love for us and our love for one another flows from that. So we thank you, Lord, uh, for this time together. Uh, bless our, our session. Help us to learn more about you and, and your will for us, your love for us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, the first question, and, and these were texted in from you guys. So the first question and this came from Paul Tripp's session yesterday. And if you remember, he asked you a question. Would you be able to write 10 pages about the love that God has for himself? And after the session, maybe you still wouldn't be able to write 10 pages, but a paragraph, I'm sure. But uh, the question went beyond that and said, um, now, now that we've learned about Christ's love for himself and uh, love for the Son and the Father, the Father and the Son... Uh, some of you, some, somebody asks about, what about love in the triune God? Love, uh, including the Holy Spirit. So love that the Holy Spirit has for the Father and the Son, Father and the Son have for the Spirit. And so if you would address that, and, and also how it can be written into our uh, gospel story, our, our redemption. Sure, and I want to give an opportunity for the esteemed theologians at the couch to also respond to this. <laughs> Hear that, Eric? <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's important uh, to uh, think of the Holy Spirit not as an it, not as a force, but a person and uh, part of that unique uh, unity uh, an affection that's part of uh, the Trinity. What, what, what I want to do last night is just eavesdrop on that conversation between the Father and the Son that is so sweetly exposed in the Gospel of John, uh, where that uh, relationship of trust and surrender is there. The Father says, I love the Son, and I would trust all things to Him. And the Son says, I love the Father, and I came only to do His will. Uh, and that the definition of a love relationship is trust and surrender. It, it's, just, it's just such a beautiful thing. And without that trust and surrender, there would have been no incarnation. There would have been no, no cross. Um, and so that's why I made that emphasis. I haven't forgotten that it's not, there aren't three people in the Trinity. 
Yeah, I'll add a couple of things. I do feel like I mean, the substance of what Paul was talking about is we just open up this glimpse into it. I would say in general, um, Christians like us tend to have this kind of missing sort of piece of our, you know, we kind of have, I, my trinity growing up was God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Bible. Um, you know, it was, uh, most Christians relate to the Holy Spirit the way um, that, you know, I relate to my pituitary gland. Um, I'm, I know it's in there. I know it's really useful for something. I'm glad it's there. I wouldn't want to be without it, but I don't really have any relationship with it. I mean, what you find is that like, you know, throughout the book of Acts, you've got what well, the Holy Spirit shows up 59 times in Acts, if you count them, and 36 of the 59, he's speaking. And really what's kind of strange is, and frustrating is that it doesn't tell us how he speaks all the time. It just says he spoke. And I have to think that's intentional because, you know, nothing's worse than somebody who opens the conversation by saying, God just told me, you know, such and such. Or more havoc has been reached in the church following those words than anything else. But it does mean that I, there has to be a way in which the Spirit of God becomes a part of our Christian experience or we are totally out of step with the people in the book of Acts. You can't, con- I know things are different than they were in Acts, but you can't convince me that the only book that records Christians walking in the spirit is filled with stories of a bunch of people whose experiences have nothing in common with us. And so what does that look like? How does he, I mean, one of the things we know is that just like Paul was talking about with the father and son, what he delights to do is direct the attention toward Jesus. Um, again, here, the whole book thing, I, um, I, I don't want to plug a book. It's called Jesus Continued. But I will tell you that all the proceeds of that book go to feed hungry children. Their names are Karis, Allie, Raya, and Adam. So you can feel good about it. Um, but uh, in, that, in that, you know, one of the things is, is that, that the characteristic of what the Spirit of God does is he said, I came to glorify Jesus. So the way that you know the Spirit is present is Jesus is magnified, not the Spirit. Uh, you kind of think about it like if you've ever been near Washington, D.C., there's hundreds of thousands of dollars that light up the Washington Monument. You can see it for miles driving down I- I- 395. Um, but you never notice the lights. You notice the monument. The lights kind of direct you to It's what J.I. Packer calls a spotlight ministry. And that's the way that you know that the Holy Spirit is present because like the Father and like the Son in relation to the others, the Holy Spirit delights to glorify Jesus. So I feel like we've got to recover that relationship, but it's not a relationship that points to itself the way that many Christians in the evangelical world are obsessed with the Holy Spirit, but one that, that, that delights in the Holy Spirit so that we can delight more in Jesus. That's what I said. <laughs> <laughs> Anybody else want to add to that, the, the love for the Spirit, love of the Spirit? All right, second question then. This goes from God's love within the Trinity to his love for the world. And so the question came in, does God love the believer and unbeliever alike? <laughs> it, it, let me remind you, John three sixteen. Yeah, okay. okay. Yeah. Don't want to be too familiar with that where you, you don't notice it. I mean, the answer has to be a qualified no. Because clearly we see that there are statements in Scripture that talk about Jesus' pursuit of those that the Father has given him and knowing them from the foundation of the world. And I'll be honest with you, I, I, you know, I, I definitely fit into a, a, you know, the camp that is represented more in this room. But, I mean, there's a lot of things 
that in Scripture, I'm like, I'm not exactly sure how to explain that to you. I know that God so loved the world. I know that the things I was pointing out from the book of Jonah, where he you know, begins to demonstrate these feelings toward people on the outside. I mean, there's things that don't fit neatly into my theological system. Like, for example, Jesus said to, you know, um, woe to you, you know, um, uh, how many times did I want to gather you into my, into, you know, like a chicken gathers, you know, her, her, her young, but you would not. I mean, he didn't say how many times I wanted to do it, but, you know, we sovereignly appointed it wasn't going to happen, so it just didn't happen. I mean, it, he squarely puts it on them and demonstrates an unrequited love. You know, in Hosea, we're talking about the, 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 the husband who loves the adulterous wife, even when she never returns, and the ache. So there is definitely, I feel like I can look at an unbeliever and not ask, are you elect? Because if you are, I'll tell you God loves you. But just say, God loves you. And, and, and he, you are the son that is running and the, and, the, and the father wants you home. And not getting, I feel like there's right and wrong ways to think about the doctrine of election. And a lot of times we take a very true doctrine of election and we apply it in the wrong ways. And we start asking things that scripture never intended us to ask. You know, it's like, what's his name? Uh, 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 Charles Hyde used to say, famous, um, very, you know, um, Calvinistic theologian used to say, um, has, God, uh, has God appointed the day that you will die? Yes. Can anything you do change that day? No. Then why do you eat? To live. What happens if you don't eat? Then you die. Well, if you don't eat and die, does that become the day that God has preordained for you to die? Quit asking stupid questions and just eat. <laughs> right? So we know that God loves the world. How that resolves with the sovereignty, I don't know. I, I know it's there. I know it's taught. But I also know that I see in Scripture a, a father yearning to bring children home, and I'm not going to deny that either. Yeah, and, and part of the uh, beauty of the life of a local church, and if I could say this, the danger of a conference like this, is... In the long-term preaching ministry of a faithful pastor who is exegeting God's Word, you'll hit all those issues. When I get up on the stage, I'm pulling from one particular passage. I'm trying to be faithful to what that passage says. John 3.16 is not meant to be an examination of the difference between God's love for the world and God's love for his believing children. It's just not. And so the, the nature of this kind of exercise is there are gaps. I mean, these are good questions. Uh, but they're questions that come out of this kind of uh, situation where you don't get that long-term sweep of the Word of God where you hit all of those issues. If you're a pastor, you're going to preach on things you don't want to preach on. And sometimes those are absolutely the most helpful things you give to your congregation. Any pro tips from Ryan? Gosh, man, I'm running out of pro tips. Um, I'll just simply say um, that we are made in God's image, and that's important to acknowledge, redeemed and unredeemed. And so in that sense, again, there's, there's so much nuances to that question alone, but that just purely based on the fact that he... Um, that we are made in this image, and when I say we, just not, just Christians and redeemed and unredeemed alike, I could freely say, yeah, God loves you. Yeah, I don't, I guess, you know, I I don't know if I think through the love of God like that, in a sense of, like, differing differing levels of love. Let's think about his love. When I'm engaging lost people with the gospel, I just, 
communicate that love when I'm ministering and pastoring mm. the church. I just communicate that love. I don't know if I, I think, I think a lot of times the, the danger we can fall into <clears throat> are creating dichotomies that aren't biblically emphasized and we can find ourselves not doing evangelism and not loving the church and not doing anyone but thinking through vast false dichotomies. So I, I just think, man, from an applicational and practical standpoint, um, I think that, you know, one of the things that Paul prays before he prays the doxology that splits the first part of Ephesians from the second part of Ephesians is he says, to know the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge. It's a beautiful Beautiful. He, in other words, he's praying that God's people would know that the love of Christ is so rich that it surpasses even our false dichotomies. So I get real concerned. You know, do I, you know, do I love this way? Like we got like a switch in us that says, okay, let me turn on Christian love. Okay, let me turn on non-Christian love. You know, and um, I, I don't, I don't know if, I don't know if it's, I don't know if they, you know, I just one of the things that. that and I'm gonna use, I rarely use this word, but <clears throat> Reformed theology has to be very careful at um, emphasizing non-explicitly stated biblical truth and over-communicating stuff that even we don't even really understand. I, I get real concerned at that at times, so. Yeah, and that's good, that's helpful. The, the Ephesians passage, uh, love that surpasses and um, maybe you can speak to, and this is a conference on love, so uh, loving our neighbor and, and what that looks like, because you've been teaching, uh, each of you have been teaching us some of that. Uh, one of the questions that came in was, we talk about loving the, uh, the poor, the needy, the addicted, the, the out of work, etc. and the question that came in was, is there a point where our help might hinder uh, do we enable others in laziness or sin? How do we help without crippling? It's a very astute question. Um, there's a great book I'd, I recommend. We have all of our mission teams read it. It's called When Helping Hurts. Um, and, I mean, it's you know not going to be a flawless book. It's not out of the Bible. But it certainly helps ask the questions of how do you help in a way that honors the image of God that is put in the person that instead of shows up with the Messiah complex and ask the questions, what do you need that I have? It asks, what has God put in you that I can um, maybe play a role in helping you discover? Uh, I think it's certainly worth asking that. You know, there are some secondary, you know, more kind of substantial books. Um, uh, uh, Wayne Grudem and Barry Asmus released one a couple of years ago called the, um, the Poverty of Nations, take off of Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations, in which they just explore different strategies in engaging with the poor, um, some of which help and some of which harm. The thing to be very careful with, though, is um, there's not a direct line. They're going to say that they're basing these things on biblical principles, and certainly, you know, we need to learn to think biblically wise, but we got to be careful adopting certain theories about poverty relief that don't, aren't explicitly endorsed in the Bible and treating them like doctrinal tenets. And a lot of Christians do that. They'd be like, well, this particular approach to economics is the biblical position. And you're like, well, maybe it's biblically informed, but let's not, you know, put in the Bible what is not in the Bible. But those books would certainly be places to begin to ask the question, how can we um, serve the poor in a way that does more than just satisfy our consciences and actually enables and empowers the poor? I I would think that um, you deal with, you know, a lot of this just thinking about 
uh, you know, because I know that you say that your churches are engaged in education and judicial and poverty things. So I, I'd be curious as to what you have to say about it. Yeah, I mean, Isaiah 58 for us is a very, very helpful theological foundation for proper help. I think there has to be preventative help. I mean, intervening help. And what I, I think that's what Isaiah 58 will talk about. Like, if someone's hungry, you need to help them to eat. If they need clothing, you need to help them with that. <clears throat> I do think that there needs to be a plan for um, long-term development, but you have to have ground for intervening help, and then you have to have what I call preventative help, which the Scripture teaches both. Intervening help is more so the homelessness, and, you know, and, that's if, and, and again, that's if the person wants to help. And so we have three levels of outreach that we do. So we have what's called blitzes, uh, connecting, and city investment. So blitzes is more so to let you know that we're there. That's more so the ground for fleeting. We used to do something called um, morning manna. We pray with people, feed people, and talk to them about the gospel. So you have those levels. Then you have those connecting events, which is more to be ground level, sort of Matthew's table type relationship building, where you're building common ground with lost people by utilizing those um, ways in which you're helping as common ground to engage them more deeply and to build relationship. City investment for us is the pressing need piece that we talked about last night when we were on the panel about Titus 314. That's when we're investing in people's ability to be empowered um, as an outgrowth of the gospel for us to view their situation as spiritual warfare, engaging those systemic systems both spiritually and naturally to see the gospel bring those down to get people in a place where they are able by the power of Christ to be able to not only be regenerated by the gospel, but see the effects on their life on notice in what I would call noticeable redemption. And so, um, which is huge. So I'll give you an example. It's a guy, the Muslim that we led to Christ recently, he was in the crack house and he was hungry. So guess what we did? We got him clothes. We got him food. We helped him to get a place to say, stay. And, but, but, but then also, he, we, we taught him interview skills. This is like within a four-day period. Once we taught him interview skills, we helped get him a um, job interview. Once he got the job interview, um, he didn't have clothes. So guess what we had to do? We had to help him to get clothes so that he would be presentable in his job interview. And he ended up getting that job. Now he's been discipled within the church. So when we talk about, full, you know, one of the things that I think is helpful is us to understand that the gospel is to make every single area of your life whole. And that's when it says, seek the peace of the city, for in its welfare, you find welfare. Um, the word wholeness there is the word shalom or peace, which means to restitch things back to God's original design. So that's what the gospel does. And I think by faith, by the power of the Spirit and the gospel, seeing all of those components put those things together. You have people run out on it, but the, the, if you miss the idea of it building common ground for gospel engagement and disciple making, and all you do is engage in the social and relief part of it, that's when the gospel gets a bit lost in it. I, I, want, to, I want to say something. <laughs> I just want to add something else here. I, I am very concerned in this area of the selfishness and deceptiveness of my own heart. And I don't want to be in the position of giving myself quasi-biblical arg arguments that relieve me of God's call to be an agent of his justice and mercy. And it's easy to do that. It sounds biblical. It sounds like good theology. But what you're doing is you're relieving yourself of something that God calls you to. You need to be careful. That's a good point. 
I, maybe we need to make that a little more personal. Maybe families that are helping others could be, even be a family member. Um, is, are there helpful things? How much initiative do we show? How much do we expect from them? Th those kinds of questions. I, I think that might have been where this question originated. That there's somebody who, who seems to be not, they're not given the ability to go out, no job interview skills, and, and maybe they don't want it. They're, there's no initiative. They just want to sit on the couch, whatever they can drain you of, that kind of thing. Well, I think in those situations, I mean, it's clear that we don't, we don't continue working with a person if they don't help us to work with them. That's just the way, you know, it just works. That's the way discipleship works. I mean, one of the things that um, we treat those issues as a discipleship issue. If they're a believer, we teach them as a sanctified, sanctification and discipleship issue. So we can't do this for you if you don't do these particular things. Like at our church, <clears throat> you know, people always come into our church to maybe get a gas bill paid or, you know, just different things that people may need sometimes. And so we have different things in place that are demarcations for us. So one of the things that we do is we have a micro form of Financial Peace University. And so one of the things that we do is we say, well, you've been here. You can only come and get, a, get help with a bill once every six months. That's number one. Number two, in order to get the money, you're going to hear our gospel spill. So you're just going to hear that. Um, that so that's just going to happen. Um, and then the other part of it is, is that we want to help you to be shepherded into comprehensive wholeness. So we have people in our church um, from, you know, working in Center City at major companies all the way to people who are on public assistance. And so one of the things that we try to do in our church is help, help our people that are on public assistance not feel less than, but then pushing those who seem to be on systemic public assistance from the government that actually can, be work, can, can work and not the ones, because we have some people that just can never work again, which that's what public assistance is for, right? But we have some people that, that, um, that are just sitting on their behinds, if you excuse my language on that, right? And so in engaging that, we're like, like I was talking to one guy, I said, man, like you got to get out of here and your family, y'all need to get a house, bro. Like, and we're going to get you with this organization, I forgot what it's called, NACA, which is an organization that pays your down payment, closing costs, and discipling people through gospel responsibility with all of their life. And so I think that when people, I think you work with people where they are when they're struggling and wrestling, particularly with an addiction, which clouds their ability to even want life because their life is built around that drug. And so I think you have to have a massive amount of empathy and you got to apply Matthew 23, 23 to that, where it says you've tithed mint and you tithe cumin, but you know, where's the mercy in relation to how you've dealt with people? And so I think you have to deal with that. But when people have gotten to a point where it's comprehensively pulling on the resources that can be spread, particularly with other people, then you got to give people over and give them freedom to go do what they're going to do and trust that the Lord loves them more than you. And, and you have to make sure you know what you're dealing with. What, what appears like laziness may be a person who's just been beaten down and just has no hope. What looks like resistance may be fear. I want to have good counselors around those people who can, who can get at what, it, what is it that we're actually dealing with. Because, I mean, a quick assessment may just be completely wrong. And I may have misjudged a person who is actually struggling with different things than I'm naming them to be. Absolutely. I mean, that, that, that part of uh, uh, um, ministry of that kind of benevolence has to be informed by pastoral wisdom. 
Very helpful. Thank you. Yeah, I just want to, I've already made the comment about the book, When Helping Hurts. Um, I want to, from another side of it, um, in a, you know, church like the one that, that I pastor, uh, a lot of the problem is that a lot of members of our congregation don't know any poor people. And I think it was like Eric was saying last night, you know, there's what a lot of times, I can't remember how you said it, but just the proximity breeds the understanding. And so it's been a challenge. How do you lead a, um, sub, uh, our church is not in the suburbs, but a lot of our people live there. And how do you lead them into engagement? Yeah, I met with the mayor um, several years ago uh, of Durham and just said, tell me the biggest broken areas in our city. And basically he identified the homeless orphan prisoner and with mother and high school dropout. And so I came back to our congregation and I said, um, this is where uh, we need to seek the peace of our city. And um, said, I, I don't want the church to develop ministries to these. I want you to develop them. And how can we as a church get behind? And we have had um, uh, the most, I mean, you know, one of our goals is to have at least 100 of these ministries that come out of our church that are not owned by the church, but are um, you know, just kind of fueled by the church. And just seeing some of the most encouraging things over the last six or seven years as ministries to homeless, orphan, prisoner, unwed mother, and high school dropout had developed um, that are engaging our members that are not just the kind of the, you know, the mission trip where you go into a bad part of town, you, you, you paint some stuff and then run back to your car and put Perel in your hands and say, see you next year. Um, but are more like, let's, let's, let's get in relationship and let's begin to do why we have an initiative at our church called dwell in which people will move from one neighborhood, um, like six or seven couples will move into another neighborhood where they can just live out the gospel there. And usually it's going to be from a higher income neighborhood into a lower income neighborhood, just knowing that we're going to have to dwell there if we're actually going to be able to be a part of it because, you know, it's not going to be found in the policy room, nor is it going to be found simply in, you know, the, the well-wishing in the church. It needs to actually, actually be there and to be a part of it. So, we, you know, we've had, I think, 120 or so of our members that are in, in this program that are living in some of these places, you know, because proximity is what, what opens the door for those things. I would just simply add, too, I love that dwell part because I think most of us who actually have a real heart to want to help uh, the homeless or the people who are hungry and wonder about this question uh, have not dwelled enough with, uh, with that community. And once you start dwelling with them, and we do have a homeless ministry, and, and one of the biggest revelations that, uh, um, that we found is that when we dwell with them, um, their narrative is much more rich. Uh, historically, they have these backstories. Much of what you're talking about, Paul, is that people, what we see as cursory reactions to things, there are stories and dysfunctions and hurts that are all attached to it. And, and we're so free to give mercy to some of us that are familiar to one another, but for these people, we outcast them and we um, are not dwelling with them. And we're not wanting to learn their stories. And once I think we discover, and they have not only a name, not only do we have a feeding program, but a holistic approach to um, stitching together, once again, the shalom aspect of, again, I think one thing that God does give us is empathy, that we start really caring for them holistically, not just their immediate hunger and clothing and food and shelter needs, but spiritually and just emotionally psychologically, what does that look like? And those things all come out, I think, which is a, a deeper question that's much more complex, but I think it comes out because we're investing in them and dwelling with them. Yeah, I've, just a, a summary of, of what we're saying is that these, these ministries need to be not just driven 
by us talking and us acting, but by listening, giving people an opportunity to tell their story, allow our prejudices and assumptions to be confronted, begin to confess that it's, it's easy to make those assumptions. And I just think you, you just give people a chance to tell their story, and all of a sudden there's layers of, of things there that you would have never known any other way that change the way you want to love that person with the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. One of the places <clears throat> where you want people to go, and this is a good, <clears throat> biblical, it's biblical and practical at the same time. I hate to act like the Bible isn't, but it is. Um, in Galatians 6, one verse will say, each one must know how to carry his own load. But then right there, a few verses later says, bear one another's burdens. So it's almost like, Bible, which is it? I think the Bible teach what I call dependent independence when it comes to spiritual maturity. <clears throat> so the goal with working with people that are having, based on the question, having this hard time, is them to get for the, for the gospel by the power of the Spirit, as by faith in the gospel, to sanctify them just like it justified them. Them get to a point where now they're able to carry their own load, and as they're able to carry their own load, they seek the initiative and push the initiative of wanting to get their needs met in these different areas. But at certain points during certain people's journeys, they need others to help them carry the load with them. And so I think that's a huge tension. But the goal is to get them to the point to where they're still dependent on the body in the sense of community, relationship, and resourcing. But there should be a point where they're taking the initiative versus being taken by the hand to every single thing that's needed. Because the goal is to see Christ formed in them. And that's what Paul says, admonishing and teaching every man that they may be presented complete in Christ. And so that's really the hope with it. So, yeah. I, Since I've been at Epiphany, I've been meeting with some young men there. They think that uh, they're getting all kinds of things from me. Those, those things are just transforming for me. Because I've heard stories of experiences I've never had in my life, I will never have in my life that have confronted my assumptions. It's been such a beautiful thing. And, and that's that proximity thing. You open yourself to a relationship with people. You give people a chance to tell their story. And it's, it's just a wonderful, and it changes the way you want to live with those people, you want to respond to those people, the way you want to minister to them. Thank you. Our next question has to do with the, the busyness of life, living in Hawaii is high cost of living, and, and everybody's busy, and I think you'll find that everywhere around the world. We're not the only ones that are busy, but um, we talk about um, completely living for the kingdom of heaven, the, this grand vision of ministry. How do you balance that, if that's the right word, um, with, with um, living, fighting for your family? keeping a job, uh, those kinds of things. So where do you make the time, find the time, make the balance, find the balance, uh, just with the busyness of life and trying to live that grand vision of ministry? Can, can I say something just real quickly, and then I'll turn it over to my esteemed colleague? <laughs> uh, you know, living with God's kingdom in view is not a different life than my life. Amen. It is my life. I, so I live with God's kingdom in view in my marriage. I live with God's kingdom in view as a neighbor. I live with God's kingdom in view in entertainment and leisure and my physical body and my, my thoughts and my finances. And it's a way of living. It's not mm -hmm. 
how do I live? And then God's going to add all this other stuff to me that's different than my life. It is my life. I mean, one of the things that, that I think a mistake people think of, and let's just take the word ministry, that it's, it's like my life belongs to me, and I step out of my life for, for ministry and then back into my life. That's not what the Bible presents. I mean, everybody who is a recipient of God's grace is called and tasked and enabled by God to be an instrument of his grace as well. Where do you do that? You do that where he's placed you. And so uh, kingdom living is ordinary. It's every day. It's mundane. It's not this big, dramatic, whatever. It's just, I mean, God's... Most of the work of God's kingdom is just boring. It's just, I just loving people. It's serving people. It's, it's, it's surrendering uh, my little agenda for what I want out of people and what I want from my life to the larger agenda of the King of Kings. Where do I do that? Where I live every day. You know, there's a lot of things in the Bible that are. Um, I think one of you referred to it earlier. They're not. Uh, contradictions to be resolved, their tensions to be managed. And I think this is one of them because there are a number of places in scripture that, you know, that admonish the idol, First Thessalonians. Uh, you know, what does it mean to carry your cross? What does it mean to sacrifice? Uh, you know, we know that Paul says, I worked harder than everybody. And a lot of people, that's what they need to hear is that, I mean, you're pursuing, you know, things that are, are futile and empty and it's nothing but entertainment and, and, and those things. And it's not going to amount. That's one side of it. But then there's another side of it that I feel particularly groups like the one that's gathered here probably overlooked, but are also in the Bible. Um, well, Psalm 127 is one of my favorite Psalms. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who labor, labor in vain. In vain does the watchman stay up late. In vain does the, you know, the farmer get up early. Um, you know, uh, it, and it's almost like the watchman's thinking, well, if I don't stay up late, who's going to watch the city? And if I don't, you know, the farmer says, I don't get up early, who's going to plow the fields? And the, and the psalmist's answer is, the Lord is doing it. He, he doesn't need you. And then my, my favorite verse in the whole psalm, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Like the sign that you're godly is you sleep well and a lot. And I can tell some really godly people in the room right now, you know. Um, but I... You know, it's this idea that I, the Lord doesn't need me to build a city. I, you know, I, I've always, it's always been really liberating to me the fact that, uh, you know, the, the, the first thing that Jesus says to his disciples after laying on them the Great Commission. I mean, talk about an assignment. Every people group in the world needs to hear the gospel, and you guys are the only ones that know it. And the first thing I want you to do is Wait. And for 10 days, they just sat around and why did the whole, why did he take 10 days? I mean, I think he was trying to show them, I don't need you for this. In fact, I can accomplish in the Holy Spirit more in 10 minutes than you could do in 10,000 years on your own. So the question is simply, am I doing what God has told me to do? And am I doing it? And one of the things that he has told me to do is he's told me to be an awesome dad. He's told me to be a great husband. He's told me in Ecclesiastes to enjoy my life, which means sometimes having a good meal and and taking a good vacation and and blessing my family. And I'm not doing that thinking like, oh my goodness, the city's not being built because the Lord doesn't need me. I just want to follow the Holy Spirit and let him you know, do his work um, through me, not do it for him. I'd just like to say something to Luella right now. When I fall asleep early in the evening and it frustrates you, I'm just being godly. That's, that's right, just what the Bible says. <laughs> I think a wonderful way, we used to call what they're talking about, I think they've answered the question, 
Um, we used to just call it a synchronized life. The life being synced into the kingdom, I think it is, in every single area of life, is viewed as the Christian life, not a segmented life, separate, sacred, secular. So I, I think it's beautiful to, 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 um, to apply that. I think rest from work is not just disengaging from work, but also, like you were saying, J.D., I, I, honestly, one of the biggest, most restful, liberating thing that um, God is working in me is to say that it's, it's not you actually doing the work. I'm working through you. And just freedom from and resting from the work and attaching yourself, um, detaching yourself from the credit. Because it only just makes you either more arrogant or more worrisome and depressed. If you think that your church is failing because, you know, just, you know, because you're not working hard enough or your church is succeeding because you're, you're so awesome. And, and I think there's a sense of immense rest that comes from the gospel when we say this is really all authority under heaven and on earth is from you, God. And you'll be with me till the end of the age. And that, that bookend of making disciples, that's an amazing restful passage for me. Because I, I often, every time I engage, I think I'm turning the gears. And I, I, I'm so tempted to take God's glory. I'm glory hungry by nature. That's what, that's what sin does. And, and I want to take the credit. But every time I take the credit, every time I wear his crown, I just start disintegrating. I start getting tired. Maybe some of you are tired. Maybe that question stemmed from just taking too much ownership from the productivity or even uh, a lack of growth in the church and stuff like that. So I want to just encourage you to look at the gospel, just hear God's word, um, just, just commend you and affirm you and just rest and know that he's in control. Just a personal testimony. Uh, some of you know that over the last 18 months, I've struggled with very serious physical things, had five surgeries. And uh, on one hand, it, it makes no sense that at the moment of my greatest ministry influence, I'm rendered weaker than I've ever been. But here's the amazing thing. This period of time has been the sweetest and most productive time in ministry of my life. And uh, I've realized a couple things. First of all, the potential of my ministry is not to be determined by the diagnosis of a physician. And God doesn't actually need me to be healthy to use me. And a lot of what I thought was confidence in Christ, and so I was pushing, 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 was really just pride. I've always been, been healthy. I'm not a man who needs much sleep. I've always had the ability to produce. And... Uh, I am convinced that what I've been experiencing is, the, is a product of God's grace. Uncomfortable grace, but it's, but it's God's grace. I've learned lessons that are very important to learn uh, just about my weakness, my ability, and what God, God can do in the midst of that. I have a lot of good questions here, but we're, we're coming to a close. So I want to end with a question for each of you. It's actually not a question that... Somebody uh, texted in and asked for each of you to give a caution to those who are in spiritual leadership. And we'll end on this. So if you can give us some words of wisdom, some, some, a caution, actually, for those in spiritual leadership. And whoever wants to start, feel free. Well, I think what I would say is your ministry 
is never just shaped by knowledge and experience and skill. It's always shaped by the true condition of your own heart. Guard your heart and surround yourself with skilled surgeons of the heart uh, because ultimate failure in ministry is seldom about gift or skill. It's about issues of the heart. Why do we let him go first? (laughs) (laughs) I I would say, I mean, I think this is on my mind because I'm reading um, Hebrews right now in my time with God every morning. And he just says, beware the deceitfulness of sin. Mm. Now, we were talking backstage earlier, and one of the things that Paul pointed out was he said, you know, that as long as there is indwelling sin in us, there will be blind spots. And we don't pay enough attention to indwelling sin because everybody tells us that we're spiritual leaders and we're awesome. And so we forget that, you know, I've got the same depraved flesh that nothing good dwells in. And the moment that I forget about it, it is just, I mean, even when I'm thinking about it, it takes over and it deceives me. And having the community that can speak into my life, that's one of the things the writer of Hebrews says is, you know, be around each other, admonishing each other. Um, as you know, because I, I think one of the other things that I'm just very wounded on right now is um, I've had a lot of friends in very high-profile positions that are no longer in ministry. I mean, pastors that very well have sat on the stage. This one right here, um, if you need, it extended the invitation two or three years ago, they would have been the ones sitting up here. And the, you know, I, it's, I don't want to try to draw a common denominator. I don't know all the stories that are going on, but I do know that one thing that appears to be consistent in each of their stories is an isolation from others who could look into their lives and call out those blind spots. Yeah. Um, you know, Char- David Pallison, this things that grow in a secret garden always grow mutant. Proverbs eighteen twenty four. you see a man isolated, there's a man seeking his own desire. And it is to stay in a place where you have others who not only have permission but have access to be able to point out when you have some relationships that seem odd, when you're, um, the way you handle conflict and is, is becoming brazen and harsh, and when you're thinking too much about yourself, who can see that and also call it out. So I guess I would summarize it to say beware the deceitfulness of, of sin. We're in the same conversations. So the first thing that uh, I thought about is in the similar vein, but just taking it a little further, um, I would encourage and just caution you, if you have a heart that is not very confessional to one another, um, be worried and be cautious because uh, I was just asked a question right before I came up, like, why share the 10% of your life? Well, you know, why, why, why just keep the 10%? Why not just expose the 90? Or why do we have to confess with one another well i would say first you should do it because it's biblical you know uh, james 5 tells us that we confess with one another so that we be healed you know proverbs 28 tells us that those of us who hide our transgressions you just won't prosper so these things are good for us to do but secondly i would say that you you do it because you face reality that is most of us fear confession because we would think that people feel less of us. And the utter reality is that you're far worse than you could ever confess about yourself. You're far worse. And this is one of the best things that I've, I've learned through the gospel is that when a person gives me a criticism and an ad hominem or some attack, I say, no, you're lowering the bar, man. I'm far worse than you could ever imagine. 
You know, and that, first of all, shuts them up. That's my tool. No. Um, but, but it is the reality. I'm far worse than he could ever project on me. You know, and so I live in that. But the third thing is you allow um, the gospel to penetrate areas in your heart that is unevangelized and that um, when the gospel comes in, it starts affirming you in places where Jesus says, well, you know, and I hope, and we're talking about this too because it's one of your prayers that I'm not going to plug your book because I don't want puppies to die. Uh, So, um, oh, okay, all right, all right. So um, there are four prayers in J.D.'s book. It's it's, uh, the gospel. It's great. And and one of the prayers uh, surrounds the utter reality that God won't ever change your mind and change his mind on you. That he can't love you any less than he already loves you now. And so if that's your utter reality, you have this incredible freedom to just share with anybody. And that the affirmation of Christ, the king of all, king of all kings, tells you, you're beloved. You're beloved. And you can't lose status from me. And so much of ministry and the lack of confession is trying to earn that credit, something that is far less than the credit that you've already received from Christ. Right. And so that helps us to address that gospel. And so I would just warn any of us who don't have a very good uh, confession discipline with one another that you would. You will find a brother. It's not to reveal everything to everyone, but a few. That in a few people that actually have every aspect of your heart, like uncovering, just dragging those things out of darkness so that things won't turn mutant. Um, I'll just say, I think everyone nailed everything um, pretty well. Think, know that you need what you tell others they need. Um, One of the most dangerous things in leadership is telling everybody else they need community, everybody else they need to pray. Everybody else, they need to get in the Word. Everybody else, they need to engage their children. Everyone else, they need to engage and love their spouse. And, and then you go into your life and you give yourself credit for the proclamation of it, but not the practice of it. Yeah. And, um, you know, watch your life and your doctrine. You save both yourself and your hearers. And so I think that passage is really real. And um, everyone I know, just like J.D. was talking about, that are in whatever predicaments. Every time that happens, I see myself because I know my blind spots, and I tend to give myself, I have to be careful of giving myself credit for communicating something well, viewing communicating it well as having it a part of my soul. When the Holy Spirit always uses us beyond our capacity and spiritual maturity. God, the Holy Spirit never uses you at your spiritual maturity level. All of us would suck at ministry. If, if it was like, if you got to be used at your level of maturity. And so never view your gifting maturity and utilize your leadership as a way to manipulate your way out of needing the gospel just as much as the people you give it to. Wow. Thank you very much, all of you. Uh, let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for the love of Christ that has been shed abroad today. And I thank you for these men and their ministries, and and thank you, Lord, for the ministries that you have given to us. Help us to be poured out for the glory of God. In Jesus' name, amen.